Every theatre has its stories. There are the ones enjoyed by audiences every night, the ones applauded and reviewed, the ones recommended to friends. Then, there's always the ones talked about behind closed doors, the ones in which the theatre itself becomes a character, often tragic. My name is Hugh Hick. In this series, we're sitting out in search of those stories, in four of Dublin's oldest theatres. This is Behind the Curtain. In 1931, two men were approached by a seemingly precocious 16-year-old American boy claiming to be a rising star of Broadway and generously offering to appear in their recently formed Dublin theatre. The two men were Hilton Edwards and Michael McLearmore. The 16-year-old boy was Orson Welles. The theatre was the Gate Theatre. You may have heard the story before. It ends with Orson Welles' debut on the Gate stage, essentially launching a career that would create some of the greatest works for stage, screen and radio in modern history. It's become part of the Orson Welles mythology. But like a lot of the Orson Welles mythology, there's more to it than that. But to separate the fact from fiction would require someone to dig through decades of correspondence and records. Thankfully for us, someone did just that. Today, we go behind the curtain of the Gate Theatre. Tony O'Dalley came to Dublin in 1950. Back then, the ticket prices for the gate were cheaper than for the cinema. You could grab a seat in the last four rows for a shilling. And so started a relationship with the gate and the Dublin theatre scene that has lasted decades and seen Tony serve on the board of the gate as well as director of the Dublin Theatre Festival. As we sit in an empty gate auditorium, Tony tells me it brings him back to those times, when the theatre was still in the stewardship of Hilton Edwards and Michael McLearmore. He never knew either particularly well, no more than to say a quick hello in passing, but he remembers the plays vividly. Michael was a, an amazing actor. I mean, he was very flamboyant. The play I remember him especially for was called Ring Round the Moon. And uh, my wife actually performed in that in an amateur company many, many years later. But he played twin brothers. And you never, obviously it was written in a way that two of them were never on stage together. But there was a joke at the end where one of them was on stage and said, oh, your brother is arriving. Then he didn't come and this guy said, I knew he wouldn't come. Tony has loads of stories he's heard through the years about the relationship between Edwards and McLearmore, some of which aren't really suitable to broadcast. Being two openly gay men in a deeply conservative Ireland, their whole image summed up what they wanted the gate to be a sort of bohemian alternative to the more conservative Abbey. That doesn't mean they had any sort of fairy tale romance. They were one of those couples who were inseparable, but also always at each other's throats. In fact, some of the best stories about them are about the fights. I know that I was told that when Michael, he played Iago to Orson Welles' film of Othello, and when he was leaving to go to do it, you know, that that Hilton was on the steps of the gate and go off you you know etc that there was a, they clearly like were together for 50 years or 60 years maybe but uh, that there was that kind of row always that was what kept them alive I think you know that they weren't really palsy A few weeks before this Myself and Tony had visited the opening of a new exhibition about Michael McLearmore in the Pier Street Library. While there, Tony had introduced me to Christopher Fitzsimon, who was giving the keynote speech at the launch. 
Christopher published a biography about MacLeamor and Edwards in 1994 entitled The Boys, but in more recent years, he's turned his attention towards a third man, Orson Welles. Christopher has researched three decades of correspondence between Orson Welles and the boys that he came across while writing the biography, and it's formed the basis of a talk that he's toured around the last few years. I knew this was an opportunity I'd never again get to find out the true story about Orson Welles and the Gate Theatre, that one legendary season he spent with them, and the lesser-told story of the decades that followed. First, here's the part of the story you might have heard, the story that Orson Welles loved to tell in interviews. As a 16-year-old boy, Orson finds himself on a trip around Europe following some personal difficulties. While in Dublin, he comes across the Gate Theatre, and down to his last few shillings, he tries a gambit. He sends a note to the manager saying, The great rising Broadway star Orson Welles is in town and is willing to appear on your stage if you'll meet with him. Orson at this point, of course, had never stepped foot on the stage. But the gambit worked, and he was given a role in the play Zoo Seuss. What followed were rave reviews and adulation, and soon he found himself on the stage of the Abbey as well. The only fly in the ointment was Michael McLeamore who Orson always portrayed as attempting to pull him down, jealous of Orson's good looks, acting ability, and the way he seemed to grab the attention of McLeamore's boyfriend, Hilton Edwards. After a season, Orson left, and the rest, to follow the cliché, is history. I always found myself fascinated by this story, but I always wondered about the relationship in the middle of it all. The relationship between the soon-to-be Hollywood icon and these founding fathers of modern Irish theatre. How was it through those formative few months forever ingrained in the Orson Welles mythos? But more to the point, how did it end? So I got Christopher into studio. Here he is with more in the story. He got quite good reviews, and I think uh, people were kind of interested to see uh, this rather different kind of actor on the stage of the gate, though he seems to have been well cast. He was very annoyed to get the part of the ghost in Hamlet because he thought it wasn't big enough. But really, anyone should be delighted to get the part of the ghost. And people I've talked to who were in the company of, at the time but now dead said he was very taking as the ghost. They thought he was like what a ghost would be, particularly his voice. Orson Welles is known for his myth-making and exaggeration. You've probably heard the stories of the infamous War of the Worlds news broadcast, which had the whole of America in a frenzy, fearing a real-life alien invasion, until a mischievously triumphant Orson Welles was forced to call a press conference to assure the world it was only a radio play. Of course, if you look closer, the reality was much different, and very few people actually thought they were listening to the genuine article. Maybe the odd few people, the same amount that might be taken in by a Waterford Whispers article, but that doesn't make as good a story, and Orson Welles loved a good story. There are moments like this in the telling of his time in Dublin. Take, for instance, his supposed move to the Abbey stage. Towards the end of his life, um, when he was recalling very real Dublin triumphs for a BBC journalist, he remarked that his greatest success was in the lead in Somerset Maugham's play, The Circle at the Abbey. So I went into this and I looked up the Abbey records, and the Abbey never did a play by Somerset Maugham. I found that his description of his performance at the Abbey, which was so well received in the Maugham play, he was with an amateur group that played with the Abbey on one Sunday night. Then... There's his relationship with McLeamore, which is also more difficult to verify. 
In later interviews, Orson Welles would paint a picture of constant tension with MacLeod Moore, maybe stemming from a bit of professional jealousy. In later years, he got more and more annoyed because he recalled being given smaller and smaller parts. And this may possibly have been because MacLeod especially uh, was feeling envious that this is going to were nurturing a star and perhaps I'm going to be sidelined. I'm only speculating about that. I think, actually, he was cast in parts that were suitable for him. Whatever the truth about their relationship, it was obviously close enough that when Wells did finally leave Dublin, he kept in touch. In fact, he collaborated with both MacLeomore and Edwards on several more occasions, most famously in his movie version of Othello in 1951, although, like a lot of their history, it was far from straightforward. What he didn't tell Michael and what I discovered when I was doing research, he had already asked other actors to play the part, and... uh, Everett Sloan, for example, who'd played Bernstein so magnificently in Citizen Kane, had been cast as Iago, but he resigned in mid-shoot because he didn't get the money for the job. And Michael was thrilled to bits to be asked to do that. And Hilton was engaged to play a smaller part in the film, Brabantio. And the idea of that, I think, was that Orson felt if Hilton was around, he'd keep Michael in control socially. And, well, he certainly kept Michael in control as a performer because he didn't overdo, as he was likely to do on the stage. It is a very compact and succinct performance of Iago. And I didn't see it for years until a new print came out a very few years ago. And I thought, my goodness, this is not the big Michael McLeamore I used to see swooshing around the Gaiety stage. This is a very considered performance of a very subtle character, and it was very good. Things quickly went sour, though. Like most of Wells' films, money was a big issue, or the lack of it. Orson's claim in a letter to the pair early in the year that he hoped to have the budget balanced by Christmas was of little comfort, and ultimately, a five-year legal battle ensued. You'd naturally think a protracted legal battle would be enough to end any friendship, or at the very least working relationship, but not for Wells and McLeamore there was to be one more chapter to their story, and this one would prove to be the most disastrous yet. Chimes of Midnight is a film well known to most fans of Orson Welles' filmography. Welles himself regarded it as his masterpiece. In it, he plays one of Shakespeare's most famous supporting characters, Henry V's early companion Sir John Falstaff, and collated all his scenes across several plays into one narrative in which Falstaff himself is the star. It's pure Welles mixing genius and hubris in equal measures. And on screen, it really works. The same couldn't be said of its beginnings as a stage play, though. One that was planned for London, Belfast and Dublin, with Hilton Edwards set to direct. What annoyed MacLeamore again this time, first of all being delighted to be in uh, Chimes at Midnight, then he heard he was not going to play the big part of Henry IV he was going to play a much smaller part, and that annoyed him very much. 
And then Orson said, but the part of the narrator is a very good part, Michael. And Michael had a kind of seizure or collapse because in the middle of the night he sent for his solicitor in Dublin, Terence de Vere White, and said, something terrible has happened, Terence, you must come round. And Terence and his wife thought Michael or Hilton must be very ill or dying or something. And it was Michael in tears in a dressing gown that he was not being offered the part of Prince Hal, who's aged 15. And he was now 56. And he was turning down the part of the narrator because it wasn't big enough. The show went ahead without MacLeamore, who nonetheless came along on opening night to the Belfast Opera House looking, as some in the audience described it, like a divorcee coming to see an ex perform on the stage and gave sheets of critical notes to Hilton Edwards. The show moved from there to the Gaiety Theatre, where things quickly went downhill. After four or five nights, without telling anybody except the Evening Herald and the Evening Press, he decided to do a one-person show of uh, conjuring tricks, of recitals from Yeats, of bits of films he had made, and because the audience in Dublin had booked And because he was very famous and they wanted to see him, they all came along uh, to see these bits and pieces and scraps. And the cast of Chimes at Midnight didn't know if they were going to be on or off until they read the evening paper. After this, Orson Welles packed up and left, going on to make Chimes of Midnight for the screen, where it found more success critically, if not commercially. He never spoke to either MacLeamore or Edwards again. In the last years of his life, MacLeamore seemed to look back on his friendship with Wells with a degree of fondness. One of his final public mentions of Wells is in a letter to film historian Peter Bogdanovich in 1970, eight years before his death. Bogdanovich was writing one of the many books about Wells and had written to MacLeamore to confirm some facts and dates. In his response, McLeamore brings it back to the very beginning, and the first meeting with the 16-year-old Wells, the central part of the Orson Welles myth, the part Orson loved to tell, the part where he stormed in and blagged his way onto the gate stage by convincing McLeamore and Edwards that he was a thriving Broadway star. When giving his talk on the relationship between McLeamore and Wells, Christopher finishes with a quote from the letter, so it seems appropriate that I finish with it as well. In it, McLeamore writes... The only thing about Orson that has really saddened and maddened me, apart from the quarrel of over ten years ago, was and is his trumpeting of the fiction that Hilton and I ever believed him when as a boy he told us he was an experienced actor. Not for one single second did this touching invention convince us, but as our poet Yeats once remarked, we must be tender to all budding things. There are so many more stories I could tell you about the gay theatre, and particularly about Michael McLeamore. Christopher had a few, having acted with McLeamore himself in a number of plays, and there was one in particular that seemed to sum him up quite well. It involved another stage production of Othello, one they both acted in. Only this time, McLeamore had a massive clash of egos with the actor playing Othello, an American called William Marshall. It didn't end well. I saw the stage was empty and I thought, my God, am I supposed to be on? And I shot up several types of stairs. And there was William Marshall strolling onto the stage, obviously having been off stage, 
and Michael McLeamore bending over the prop table over which he had been knocked because Marshall had heard him in the wings muttering. Did you know what he was muttering? Anything, I think, to put Marshall off. But we have other theatres to visit and other stories to tell. Have you heard the one about Smock Alley and the sexual harassment case that led to a riot? Next time on Behind the Curtain. This episode was produced by Hugh Hick and Heather McLeod. Special thanks to Tony O'Dolig, Christopher Fitzsimon and everyone at the Gate Theatre. The producers would also like to thank Jack Gilligan for his assistance with this episode. Behind the Curtain is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Thank you.